This is Wednesday, the Feast of Trumpets, and then day after tomorrow is the fast of the seventh month uh, on Friday. So, that one is commemorative, of course, as I said last week, of Gedaliah being killed, who was the appointed leader of Israel. And uh, I did make some comments even then that uh, events in Washington and attitudes across the country are getting such that threats are being made to senators, their lives, uh, threats are being made on the president, and uh, when we go into a feast about the ruler of Israel being killed, uh, we have to understand it not just in historical context as the Jews might, but we have to understand it in terms of prophecy. And I, I think that it is very, very likely based on the prophecies of Jeremiah combined with the one in Isaiah 7 about the land losing both of her kings. But we will see the assassination of our president and, and probably vice president. I don't know that that's the correct interpretation of that, but uh, in the context of this nation being destroyed there in Isaiah 7, it seems to fit the picture very well because we're very near the destruction of the nation. And uh, that was one of the things that would occur just prior to that happening and is listed there in that context. So uh, I'm not making any kind of threat, please. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying that that's what the prophecy seems to indicate, and we certainly are not involved in that in any form or fashion, nor do we desire that. We would love to see our nation saved, as it says there in Jeremiah 50 and 51, but there's nothing that can be done about it at this point. The judgment is already set. Uh, the prophecies are written, and they shall be fulfilled. So any efforts made at trying to save this nation at this time will not occur. And even our president has said that that was his goal and purpose, not in terms of biblical salvation of the nation, but in terms of making it great again and making it what at least he envisioned it should be. Uh, and that can't be done either, because there's too much that has occurred and too much debt and too, much, too many enemies, and it's over. It's done. And God even told us, don't waste your breath praying about it there in Jeremiah. Uh, it's not going to happen. So... Uh, the die is cast. The handwriting is on the wall. Anyway, I I take the fast of Gedaliah dying very seriously. And the Edomites are going to be involved again, according to the book of Obadiah, in the destruction of this nation, just like they were in the, the killing of Obadiah, I mean Obadiah, of uh, Gedaliah. So there's, there's much just ahead of us. All right, then we have atonement coming up on the 19th. That's a week from this Friday. And our meeting will then will be, and I'll announce it again, I'm sure, at 1 o'clock, just a regular Sabbath time on atonement next Friday. Not this coming Friday, but the week after. And, of course, Feast of Tabernacles then begins on the 24th and ends on the 31st of October, and I think we even have the time right. Uh, 
there are many, many congregations and churches and offshoots of the Worldwide Church of God who were a month early or two or three days in a month early, and even if they were in the right month, a day or two late, and it's interpreted many, many different ways. But I think that we are correct in the reading of the heavens and following what they say. I don't think we can go wrong with that. So that's what we're attempting to do, and I, I think that we have it right. Anyway, I have here a schedule. Some out in the field had asked, uh, and there isn't really much time to get it mailed, and he'll be here before, well, maybe he'll get to you before, but uh, briefly, uh, on the Sabbaths, both the, the Holy Day at the beginning and the end, and the weekly Sabbath during the feast, we'll have the services at 1 o'clock, and all other days at 11 in the morning. So, all Sabbaths, 1 o'clock, all other days, 11 o'clock. It's fairly simple. Uh, if you're not here, well, they will be here then, some of them. Some will not be able to make the trip. But we are planning on going up to Zion for uh, the service on the second day. And that everything else is here local. So there you have it in a nutshell, or at least on a sheet of paper. Uh, someone brought up the subject of third tithe recently, so I double-checked my... I have it written out many, many years in advance, figured ahead of time, and uh, indeed, this coming feast begins the sixth year of the seven-year cycle, which means that uh, starting from the feast, it is a feast-to-feast feast third tithe year. And then the next year is the year of release, beginning feast of next fall in, in 19, the seventh year of the seven-year cycle. So... I guess that's about it as far as announcements are concerned, so let's get down to the meaning of the day with some meat in due season. Leviticus 23 doesn't tell us too much about the Feast of Trumpets. It just says that there will be a holy convocation, a commanded assembly, and blowing of trumpets. That's about all it says about it. Some of the others, it, uh, like Pentecost, it goes into a much greater detail. But very little is said there about the Feast of Trumpets, and we have to pretty much go to the New Testament to find the meaning and what it has to do with in God's plan. Now let's uh, let's begin in First uh, Thessalonians four. First Thessalonians four. This is one that we normally always read at this time, and usually at funerals as well. And it states very succinctly in verse 16, For the Eternal Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. It's going to be uh, audible, obviously. A shout, apparently from Him, and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. So a trumpet will be blown, 
and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The dead in Christ, it says. So those who know Him, who have obeyed Him, who followed Him, those who are, who are safely sealed of Him, as He says, He will seal those that will be in that resurrection, uh, the 144,000 there in uh, Revelation 7 and 14 are described, and it says that these are the first fruits. There's no equivocation there. There's no uh, including of a great multitude or anything else. Uh, those are the only first fruits, the 144,000. And they are the dead in Christ, along with those who alive and remain who have not died, who will be changed. So the dead in Christ will rise first uh, momentarily. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the eternal in the air, and so shall we ever be with the eternal. And then we're told to comfort each other with these words, because there isn't much comfort in this world, in this life. Uh, things are bad all over. Uh, this is a very trying time on earth that we are living in. And notice also here that uh, Paul was a false prophet. He included himself and those which would still be alive when Christ returned. I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course, uh, because Christ had kept from the apostles and from Paul for three and a half years of teaching him in the desert. He never told him that there was still 2,000 years out there to go through. Uh, you and I get impatient if it doesn't happen in whatever date we set whether it be in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or whenever. But uh, he has pretty well hidden that, at least here until the end. I think we have a pretty good idea now uh, of when this will be, but we might be a year or two or three off one direction or the other. We'll see. But he fully expected to still be alive when Christ returned. But God doesn't tell us everything at all times. So he wasn't a false prophet at all. He just hadn't been told something, and he just expresses his expectation here is all he was doing. That's the truth as he understood it. But he didn't have the whole story. Some people say Herbert Armstrong was a false prophet because he said this and said that. No more so than Paul was. He had partial understanding. And uh, he expressed it the best he could with the understanding God had given, and God had given him a lot of understanding. But there were certain things he just did not reveal to Herbert Armstrong that had to be revealed later, and I'm sure still will be. Because Herbert Armstrong obviously could not have been and was not the last Elijah, and therefore he couldn't have restored all things. It would have been an impossibility since that wasn't his job. So we have to understand those things and realize, no, he wasn't a false prophet. He was just preaching, as Paul says, to the limit of his understanding. And that's all he knew, and that's all he could say. And that's all we could learn then. But we've learned a lot since because of conditions that have occurred and trying to understand what has occurred in the light of Scripture. And lo and behold, when we examine the Scripture, it's in there. It's just there, and it cannot be denied once you grasp it and understand it. So, uh, here we are.
Some have, many have died since Paul wrote that, including Paul himself. And in the 2,000 years that have occurred since then, many, many more. And even in this age, we have many who have died in Christ, who have been called, converted, were living their lives. And, you know, I've been to a lot of funerals over the years uh, of church people. And many of them I knew, and many of them I knew quite well. And, you know, I don't remember one that was perfect. Every one of them that I knew of that died, I could even see some flaw or some lack or some whatever in them, and they weren't perfect by any means. And yet I had no doubt, as I preached some sermons and listened to others preach some sermons for them, that they would be in the kingdom of God. Because he who can bring us salvation has mercy and love and kindness and grace we've been reading about in Romans. And so we will all fall short of the glory of God, and yet he can make up the difference. So Paul, who was saying, we which are alive and remain, will be caught up, and he was including himself. And yet he wrote in other passages... Uh, how he had to beat himself into subjection lest he become a castaway, and how his nature was, his spirit was willing and his flesh was weak, and various things that he wrote, showing that he himself had not reached perfection either, and it was possible that he wouldn't make it, and he encouraged others not to give up lest they not make it. So there's a lot of encouragement here in that he included these people in Thessalonica and himself as those who, yet being imperfect, would be in that resurrection. So there is a lot of comfort in these words that he gives right here. Well, that's kind of the, in one sense, the end of the story here for Feast of Trumpets uh, spoken before we really get into it. But there's some scriptures I wish to consider today that are important for us to understand in this light. Let's go back to Luke 20. Luke 20. And here in about verse 27. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees in Luke 20, verse 27, which deny that there is any resurrection. So we have just read Paul's testimony that there is a resurrection uh, and the dead will rise, come up from the dead, won't be dead anymore. I described not too long ago that dead is dead and we've all seen dead and dead is not pretty and dead in a little while begins to smell dead and uh, there does not appear to be any solution to the problem. You know, there are people who tend to be problem solvers, and they can look at a set of circumstances, and they can figure out a solution to whatever problem might be on the table at the moment, and come up with a, a way to fix that particular problem, whether it be in business or farming or whatever it might be. Uh, human relationships, they come up with a solution. Now, here's what we need to do in order to make this go away and be okay. 
But nobody seems to be able to come up with a solution or a way to fix dead. Okay? So, is it any surprise that maybe the Sadducees have said, I've seen dead and there's no way to fix that. There is no resurrection. How could you believe such a thing? Well, Paul just said there was one. Now, here we have the Sadducees saying there isn't. So, let's examine some scriptures about the resurrection because it's a very critical issue. Very critical issue. And they said to him in verse 28, Master, Moses wrote to us, If any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed to his brother. Now they thought they were on real strong ground here. They didn't believe in a resurrection. So they go back and quote Moses. Ah, we got you. Because here's something Moses said. And Moses did indeed say what they were quoting to Christ. If you die and you don't have any kids, the, that poor woman has to marry the brother. Now, that might be okay in some cases. But my wife knew my brothers, and she says, I'd die first. <laughs> Whatever. There were therefore, and so he, they went on to extrapolate on that, and said, there were therefore seven brothers. And the first, this is a, an imaginary situation, obviously. Got to marry the brother. Okay, here's, here's a scenario, they say. Here was a man that had seven brothers. And he died. And the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her to wife. And he died childless. And the third took her. In like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. I don't know what the problem was there. Was she barren or were they just not up to, the, to it or whatever? But this is hypothetical, obviously. Last of all, the poor woman, I, I put in the word, the poor woman died also. <laughs> After eight brothers, I guess. There was a movie kind of like that, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, 50 years ago or whenever it was. Anyway, their question was, Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. They thought they had him. Boy, this is a tough one to figure out. Is it the first or the eighth? Which, which is it? And Emmanuel answering said to them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection. Now, what do we know about that from other scriptures? We know we are to become the bride of Christ. He is going to marry 144,000. That's a lot bigger question, actually, when you stop to think about it, than their little hypothetical thing of eight brothers. Here's Christ going to marry 144,000. See if you can get your mind around that. <laughs> 
There's, could we say that's polygamy? He doesn't allow polygamy now. He did in the Old Testament because of the hardness of the hearts. But it's, it's an analogy because we don't understand fully uh, the Spirit and the resurrection and the relationship that will be there between Christ and His bride. I, I don't know exactly what the relationship will be. We'll all be very, very close because he indicates in many scriptures, which I went through around Passover time, that uh, we are to be very intimate and close even as he wants us to be with him now, and it will be even more so in the resurrection. There will be a husband-wife relationship, and our marriages here are a pitiful... Um, pitiful manifestation of what shall be, because we cannot conduct marriage on the same level that Christ will with his bride uh, by any means, because we are still human, and we still have problems and lacks and deficiencies and attitudes and all kinds of things that humans are still subject to, and therefore we cannot have a perfect marriage, even as we cannot be perfect. So a lot of these people that I've watched die, and I realize they weren't perfect, their mates may also have died, and they weren't perfect, and therefore they didn't have a perfect marriage. Uh, they might have had a good one, but it wasn't perfect, I'll guarantee you, because that has not happened in this life. But anyway, uh, he says they won't be marrying or being married. Neither can they die anymore. Uh, being the children of the resurrection. So he says, when there is a resurrection, he's explaining to them, there will be one, and when it occurs, people in the resurrection won't die. Now, he has to be speaking here of the first resurrection, does he not? Because those are the ones that won't die. But those who come up in the second resurrection... We'll live a hundred years and die, Isaiah 65 tells us. And perhaps even those in the great white throne judgment. I don't know that. It's appointed all men once to die. But uh, there will be death that occurs with mankind after the first resurrection. That only includes 144,000 people, and the rest of the dead lived not till that thousand years were over, and then came to life. So... He's speaking, then, of someone other than these Sadducees. He says, now that, the death, now that the dead are raised, even Moses shows at the burning bush, when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. He makes a very, very good point there that just stopped their mouths because they looked to Moses, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were in history. They died long, long ago and been buried and their sepulchers were still around. So these people knew that they had died. And yet God says He is the God of the living, not of the dead. Well, if... If they were not going to be resurrected, then he was not their God anymore, because they were dead. So obviously, if he's to be their God, they have to live again. 
So he used an example they simply could not answer. <laughs> so there is a resurrection in Christ. Even though you, you, you already believe in it at this point, here were people that didn't believe in it, and he proved to them that there was such a thing, and they had no answer. I doubt seriously they believed him. They didn't want to believe it. But they couldn't answer it either, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will live again, and God will be their living God. Let's go from there to uh, Luke 14. Luke 14. Now, let's go to John 11 first. I want to save that one. Let's go to John 11. It'll be better better sequence this way. Um, another insight into resurrection. John 11. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Eternal with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So Mary and Martha were worried about their brother and sent word to Christ. Now, when Jesus heard that he said, This sickness is not to death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, these people were worried that their brother was going to die. And Christ himself knew Lazarus was going to die. Now, generally, when you hear, or I hear, that somebody is about to die, we make a bad dash for the car and do the best we can to get there, to be of solace, to be of help, to be of encouragement, to just be, if nothing else, because it's a serious matter. When you're dead, you're dead. And we take it seriously because we understand that. But Christ didn't hurry. Now, that's not the way it normally is with people. They do hurry. Uh, when I told my our daughters that the Marla was about to die, I mean, they caught the next plane and gassed the car and were on their way here, in different cases, immediately. Get here as quick as they could and made it in time to visit with her just a little bit at least. But it was a sense of urgency. Now, if Christ be Christ, and He love us as much as He says He loves us, wouldn't He have been urgent? You would think so. Lazarus was His good friend. And so were these two girls. Very good friends. But He wasn't urgent about it. See, he knew more than they knew. And he acts on his knowledge, which is way beyond our knowledge, right? So that's what faith is all about. We trust him that he knows best and that he knows all. And sometimes we might get in an attitude. Well, why doesn't he do this now? Because it appears to me that it needs to be done now. 
Why hasn't he returned? It appears to me it needed to be now. Habakkuk kind of got in an attitude. When? I'm frustrated. Tell me when. And then he got a little concerned and thought, wait a minute, I'm talking to God here. I might better back off a little and lay back and wait and see what he has in mind because he might know more than I do. (laughs) You know? Now, that does not cancel those two scriptures that I quote frequently about how he says he will do this thing before the flesh fails before him, before we all die off. Not that some won't, but before we all do. And he also says, again in Isaiah, that we are to give him no rest until it does occur. Like the woman before the unjust judge, we bring our petition regularly and not let him forget. So, but it's all about attitude. Attitude is everything, no matter the circumstance. Attitude is always everything. Habakkuk was a little impatient with God. That was an attitude. Now, it's not wrong to wonder how long is it going to be and when will God answer, but the attitude needs to be one of patience and faith and trust. So we can go to him and say, you promised before we die, you told us to petition you regularly and to give you no rest. Stay after him. But the attitude is, we know you know best. We know you will do within your will. So we're pleading, we're asking, we're desirous of your answer. But we're not impatient and frustrated that we don't have what we want when we want it. So those scriptures could be a seeming contradiction, except Habakkuk had a bad attitude, and we are to come to God in those Isaiah scriptures with a good attitude. So, Habakkuk was desirous of the same thing we are. It all had to do with attitude, as does everything. Anyway, he heard it. And he says, oh, this isn't to death, but for the glory of God. Well, wait a minute. The guy did die, didn't he? Yeah. Let's go on. (coughs) But that God might be glorified with what's happening here. So he understood everything about the circumstance, knew how it would all turn out, knew what these people's attitude would be, but he had something to show them. Fast forward to today, there are going to be signs and wonders done by God that will cause all the eyes of all seven of the churches to focus on the stone, which is Christ, who does the miracles. That's going to happen very shortly now. So let's extrapolate ourselves into the context here and understand that what he's saying and what he's doing here is an example for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. This is instructive to us. This gives us something to think about. So, whatever was to be done, he said, was to God's glory. 
Now, Emmanuel loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, he had very deep personal feelings for these three, and they are mentioned more than once in the story of Christ. And there are even people who believe he married these two women and others, uh, which is ridiculous. But nonetheless, they are central to the story is the point I'm making. And there were some people that he had a very deep personal love and compassion for. And that's why this point is made. So, he was going to do the very best for these, his friends, these whom he cared about. But to them, it seemed just the opposite. Why doesn't he hurry? He's about to die. He may not last another 24 hours. Why doesn't he hurry? Do you ever feel that way? <laughs> I think we all have. So verse 6, when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. He didn't move a muscle. He didn't jump in the car and run to Lazarus' side. He stayed right where he was for two more days. Then after that, says he to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. His disciples say to him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone you, and you go there again? So here's something else to come that comes into play. Lazarus is dying. Christ says, ah, I'm going to sit here a couple more days. And then he says, we'll go back to Judea. And now he gets opposition, not just from Mary and Martha and Lazarus in their minds. I mean, they were apart, so he, he couldn't, this communication wasn't there. But they were sitting there agitating and worried. And he's cooling his heels. So, then he starts to go back, and for him to go back was what these people wanted. And then when he said, I'm going back, that was what these other people wanted, the disciples. So here he is. He can't please anybody on either side, either Lazarus' family or his disciples. You ever feel like that? Doesn't make any difference what I do. I can't please anybody. <laughs> I think we've all felt that. And that's where he was. His disciples said, they're going to stone you. And he answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walks in the day, he stumbles not, because he sees the light of this world. So he's using a physical, physical analogy. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbles because there's no light in him. He can't see where he's going, can't place his feet right, falls on his nose. These things said he, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. I mean, you get tired, sleep restores you. You feel a lot better the next day than you did last night. So, they couldn't comprehend, obviously, the spiritual thing that he was telling them. So, but that would have been a long sleep. <laughs> you know, eight hours generally is enough. But here, he says he's sleeping. Uh, have you ever had a three, four, hour, three, four day nap? I've never slept that long. But, you know, the disciples, they, they would use their imagination 
And they couldn't figure the whole thing out because they didn't know what... Why did he say that? That doesn't make any sense. But they have to conclude that he's just taking a nap. <laughs> it's just been a real long one. So they don't see the logic even in their own attitude because they don't understand the spiritual side that he's not yet explaining. Howbeit, Emmanuel spoke of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. So, very frequently, he would say things that they did not understand, deeper things, and sometimes we read things and don't quite grasp what it is that he's saying, because we don't have the full understanding. And that harkens back to what I said earlier about Herbert Armstrong. There were simply certain things that were going to occur that he didn't grasp. And even doctrines that he didn't realize or could not realize. And how could he have put together the story of the church being blown apart like it was without understanding that those scriptures and all the prophecies had to do with the church, not just physical Israel? But he was not enjoined by God to do the preaching to the end-time church. He was told to preach to the world and go make disciples of the world. And he misinterpreted Matthew twenty-four fourteen, thinking he was to preach the gospel to the world, and the end would come. But like Paul, Christ hadn't told him everything. He let him labor under Matthew twenty four fourteen to spur him on, thinking the time was short, so he needed to hurry. So that was abuse to God not to tell him, oh wait a minute, Herbert, Matthew twenty four fourteen is not your job. Matthew twenty eight, nineteen, twenty is. And then he might have thought, Oh, okay, that's all I have to do, so I'll start on that tomorrow. You know, they wouldn't have the same urgency that God allowed him and caused him to have to get the job done that he was supposed to do. And, indeed, he got that job done. He just didn't get the one job done that he thought he was going to do. So, uh, he told him he's dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Now, he didn't tell them there that he was going to go resurrect Lazarus either, did he? He just said, I'm glad your, your sakes I wasn't there when he died. What do you mean? Would have been in their mind. What do you mean by that? That doesn't make any sense. But you might believe. Believe what? That didn't make any sense to them either. But he said, he's dead. I've waited around because they'd seen the message come in. And then he sat there for two more days before he did anything. So they must have been totally perplexed. What is going on here? Well, he had a plan in mind. He wanted them to believe he was God. And that went through many, many different iterations and lessons to show them that. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. 
So, in their mind, they had forgotten about Lazarus at this point. They were thinking about themselves. Because their attitude was, he's going to go and he's going to be stoned. They weren't saying, let's go die with Lazarus. They were saying, let's go die with Christ, because as soon as he hits Jerusalem, he's going to be stoned to death. And we might as well go be stoned with him. Then when Emmanuel came, he found that he had laid in the grave four days already. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. There's a a good one to mark or remember. Bethany was at the Mount of Olives, and 15 furlongs is about a mile and three quarters. And the site that I believe has been shown us was the site of the original Jerusalem is a mile and three quarters from the nearest high place or mountain to it. Same distance here. And there's, there's a couple other scriptures to go with, with that to prove it. And that is not the case in the Middle East, where it's just across the street. Uh, just a side issue. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Been dead four days, got all these people coming to comfort them during the time of mourning. Uh, so these Jews that were going to stone Jesus <laughs> were already at the house consoling the family. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Emmanuel was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Well, Martha and Mary were different. Uh, Martha stirred about getting everything done. She was energetic. Uh, and, uh, no, wait a minute. Which, which one was it? I, I'm kind of forgetting now. Martha, Martha was the one that was doing, and Mary was sitting listening. So they had a, a di- difference in personality there. But Martha ran off to meet him. Then said Martha to Emmanuel, Lord... If you had been here, my brother had not died. So, I think she's evincing a bit of an attitude here at least. Why didn't you come quicker? It's only a mile and three quarters. <laughs> you know, you, you could have been here a lot faster than that. A couple hours, three hours, you could have been here. And he's been dead now four days. So, she was perplexed, just as the disciples had been. Dealing with God is... A bit tricky, isn't it? If you stop and think about that. Sometimes he's working with us, working on us, doing different things, and we don't understand. We get perplexed. We get confused. We we don't grasp. What is it that he's doing here? So we cogitate and think about it and try to figure out just what is God doing. And we try to learn from whatever it is that we're going through what it might be that he has for us to know and to learn. Well, as we go down, we're going to see here, there was an awful lot for them to learn. But disciples, family, everybody was perplexed. And he didn't seem to mind leaving them in confusion, did he? For his purposes. So she said, if you'd have come, he would have died. She believed in him enough to know that she'd seen the sick healed. But I know that even now, whatsoever you will ask of God, God will give it you. So she was perplexed. She thought if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. 
But now he is dead. But she had enough belief and enough trust in him to say that, you know, you could raise him up. Whatever you ask of God will happen. So she, she was entertaining the thought that he might be raised up. Clearly, that's what she meant. So was her speculation right or wrong? Let's go on. Emmanuel said to her, your brother shall rise again. He still didn't give her the whole story. He's going to to be resurrected. Because she had implied that when she said that. And uh, and all he said was, yeah, he's going to rise again. Didn't say when. So Martha said to him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She says, I understand that, but I'm grieving now. When I said that above, I was kind of hoping maybe you would ask the Father and he'd come up now. And you just told me, oh, he'll rise again in the last day, was the implication. He's kind of playing with her, isn't he? In, in a one sense, kind of a cat and mouse game here, back and forth without divulging the whole story. Interesting how God works with us. He gives us a little here, gives us a little there, lets us wonder at times, what's going on here, what are you doing? So I know he'll come up at the last day. That, that I know. So he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So he reiterates the story of the resurrection, and that it is true, and that it will come, that it will happen. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, he's speaking here, obviously, of eternal life that you won't die from. It's not contradicting the Scripture that says it is appointed to all men once to die, and that the same uh, thing befalls them all, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. But do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world, and therefore be the... A fulfillment of all those scriptures in the Old Testament, but do talk about a resurrection. And when she had so said, she went her way. Now, she was still, at this point, not aware of what he was thinking or about to do. She thought, well, that's all I'm going to get out of him. So she went to tell Mary that he was there, that I've seen him and I've talked to him and he's here. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly. So she went just to Mary, not to the Jews that were around or anybody else maybe in the family or friends, saying, the Master has come and calls for you. So Christ must have said something to her about, uh, where's Mary, or can I see Mary, or will you go get Mary? Well, he didn't explain to her the whole circumstance, but he wanted Mary there to be a witness to what he was about to do. Is he going to have witnesses here at the end of what he is about to do? Will signs and wonders come even ahead of the preaching of the two witnesses 
to tell the church what he is about to do. That's what Haggai and Zechariah are all about. And then, a message to the world to show the world what he is about to do. Because he's going to put the church in Zion with their light shining from a hill, Mount Zion, to show the world what can be and will be. But he won't fill them in on everything. (laughs) And he will allow them to die. And then a resurrection, great white throne judgment for them. Now, I think this is a picture of that. Because Lazarus came back to physical life. Uh, not to spirit life here, but physical life. And that's the way these people will be, that you are to be a light to. They'll come up again in physical life to live and have their opportunity at spirit life. All right, let's go on. Uh, So he's coming, he wants to see you. And as soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. Now, she's to be part of the bride, isn't she? I, I certainly believe that. What about the ten virgins that slumbered and slept? And then they were waked up and they were drowsy and some came and some did not come. Some had oil and some did not have oil. Remember the Song of Songs and how uh, he comes knocking at the door and she says, oh, I'm kind of comfy in bed and I don't want to have to get up and put my robe on and my shoes on and and, uh, that would be somewhat of a bother to me because I'm here warm. Why don't you just open the door? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I don't want to be bothered. That wasn't Mary's attitude. She rose quickly. As soon as he called, she jumped up and took off, mourning though she was. Now, Emmanuel's not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. So, he stayed right where he was, sent her ahead to get Mary, and then they came back to where he was. <clears throat> the Jews then, which were with her in the house, and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying... She goes to the grave to weep there. So this is part of her mourning. She, this had been told to her privately by uh, Martha. So she gets up to leave and they decide to go along. We'll, we'll be there to comfort her in her mourning. You think Christ didn't know that there would be a retinue that would follow her uh, because they were there to mourn with her. And if she jumped up and left, They were wondering what's going on. Oh, she must be going to mourn and weep at the grave, so we'll go too. So they went. More than just the family are going to witness what's about to happen here. Then when Mary was come to where Emmanuel was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. She had the same attitude her sister had. If you'd have just come when we called... You could have prevented our brother from being dead. He was your friend, and you didn't come. So they believed him, and they knew him, and they loved him, but they didn't understand. They, they couldn't grasp why he didn't come right away. 
So it may not be an accusation as much as it is puzzlement. Why? You loved him, you love us, and, and you didn't bother. So when Emmanuel therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Yes, he did love Lazarus very deeply, and he loved Martha and Mary deeply. And truth to be told, he also loved these Jews very deeply, because he loved the whole world and everyone in it. So he groaned in himself, and he knew he was using subterfuge. He knew he was not telling them the whole story. He loved them so much that he wanted them relieved from their distress and their mourning and their hurt. So he groaned within himself because he had set this whole thing up and he knew that it was causing them suffering. And that bothered him, but he had a purpose in mind. And are we not told throughout Scripture that we will have suffering and we will have trials, troubles, and tribulations in this life, but they're all there for a reason? for a purpose, to teach us certain things, and to chasten us, and so on. It hurts him to see us go through all that we go through. So when he sees it with you and me, and he counts our hair, at least of the 144,000, I don't know about the whole world, because time and chance does happen to them, but not to us. He was hurting for them. But he had a purpose in mind. So he said, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And he wept. He cried. He was hurting. He loved. And he loved so much that he broke into tears. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. They could see his emotion. They could see his face all cloud up and the tears begin to come out his eyes. And how he looked when it was announced that, Yah will take you to the grave. That is, I mean, in, in one sense it's sort of not quite so real until you go to the tomb and there it is then it's not just in your mind, it's before your very eyes. So they said, wow, he must have loved him. And some of them said, could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? So same attitude Martha had, same attitude Mary had. Now the Jews said, hey, we've seen him make the blind see. Why didn't he come? (laughs) The same question. And this man might not have died. He could have fixed whatever was wrong with him. Christ had not intended to fix what was wrong with him. He had something else in mind. We may be very surprised at some of the things Christ has in mind between now and when all this comes down. We may very well be. Those signs and wonders are not written there for no purpose. There will be some. What exact form they take, we wait and see. But we've been told it will happen. He might not have even died if you'd have just come along. 
we've got people up here in our graveyard that would said, well, if Christ had come sooner, these wouldn't have died. They'd still be here. We wouldn't be in mourning. We wouldn't be missing them. Fathers, mothers, brothers, wives, husbands. They'd still be alive. Why didn't you come quicker? You could have healed them. So, we've all entertained some of those thoughts. Emmanuel, therefore, again, groaning in himself, verse 38, comes to the grave. So he was, he was greatly depressed, frustrated, uh, grievous over this. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Been dead four days, hole in the wall and a stone over it, just as it had been rolled over his grave when he died. Or, or was, would be later, I'm sorry, he hadn't died yet, but it would be that way. So Emmanuel answered, take away the stone. Oh, wait a minute. You want us to open the grave <laughs> after four days? She, uh, she questioned that. <clears throat> Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time he stinks, for he's been dead four days. Are you sure that's what you want done? He said to her, Said I not to you that if you would believe, you should see the glory of God? He does, still doesn't say, I'm, I'm about to resurrect him. But didn't I tell you you would see the glory of God? Now, there's a pretty good hint, <laughs> is it not? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. This, this is a pretty good build-up, isn't it? This, this is a, an important story. It's an important story for us, because it was written for us. That's what Paul said, didn't he? So Emmanuel lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, he had prayed silently to himself, to the Father, and he didn't say a prayer as such here at this point, uh, other than thanking God for having heard, and he knew with no shadow of doubt in his heart and mind, what he was about to accomplish from the Father. I know you heard me, and I knew that you hear me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that you have sent me. So he, what he was about to do, he didn't want them to think he had done. Because at this point, he was just a human being on the earth, although the Son of God, but it was the Father in heaven who had the power that he did not have. So he pointed to the Father. There's where the power for what I'm about to do comes, and that's why I didn't pray the prayer audibly, but I thanked you audibly, and thank you for always hearing me, so that they would get the connection, all of them, where God was. So that's why he said what he said. <clears throat> and when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, in most instances, and there are only eight, in the Scripture, when someone was resurrected physically, uh, it was done, for the most part, privately and quietly, uh, with... Uh, I can't say his name now. 
the kid that fell out of the loft, um, Eutychus, uh, he, uh, he did that in front of everybody. But even Elijah, with the widow's young son, took him up to his room and got apart. And, and uh, that was the way it generally was done and the way Christ did it, except here. But he was going to make an example to the family, to the Jews, to anybody who might have gathered. So he said it in a very loud voice, cried out, Lazarus, come forth. Not like that. He said, Lazarus, come forth. It was an order. And he that was dead <laughs> came forth. Now, he had been stinking terribly a second before. And I, they may have even been standing around, and the smell came out of that grave. That's why they didn't want to move the stone in the first place, because they knew that they would be overwhelmed with the stench of death. Well, Christ had set this thing up very well. He hadn't arrived ten minutes after Lazarus died. He waited till he was dead and stinking. There was no question. And there could have been no question in those that were in those shots of what was going on here, of the situation. He makes it very, very plain. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. That must have been quite a sight. And his face was bound about with a napkin. So he had his face covered. He had grave clothes on. They didn't put him in his nicest suit or dress. They had stuff they wrapped him up with in those days. So Emmanuel said to them, Loose him and let him go. Now his arms were probably bound. This thing wrapped around him. And he couldn't do anything. He didn't manage to shuffle out of there on foot and was standing there with his face covered, wondering, what in the world is going on here? <laughs> you, you've never been resurrected. You've, you've waked up out of sleep, but that must have been a lot of consternation going through his mind and emotions. Here I can't move. I can think, and I'm alive. Did I die? What happened? What's going on here? Did he still have a bit of a scent of death about him in the clothes? I don't know. But he was, he was trying to figure out what's going on here and was probably as amazed as the people who were the witnesses of what was going on there. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Emmanuel did believed on him. Oh! Wow, when you see somebody that stinks that bad come walking out, that puts a certain amount of belief in your head. But not everybody. Some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Emmanuel had done. So some believed. Aren't people different? Isn't it amazing? You, you show somebody or tell somebody the exact same thing. They're witnesses of exactly what happened. Some believe this. Some believe that. Who are we? Some went to the Pharisees. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, 
what are we going to do for this man does many miracles? They hated him. They despised him. They wanted to kill him. And yet he did these miracles and the people believed in him. And he had just raised a man from the dead according to what these Jews came and told them. I don't know whether they really totally believed it or not, but they knew that he had done miracles. And you mean he raised somebody from the dead? Really? What are we going to do about this? Now you'd think that if somebody came to town who could raise the dead, you would say, wow, that's impressive. That's great. I'd like to listen to this guy some more. Now some of them thought that. But sometimes when enemies are so bitter, there is nothing you can do to change their minds. Nothing. Raising the dead will not change their minds. Toward Christ himself, much less anybody else. How stubborn can people be? What do we do? If we let him alone, all men will believe on him. They'll quit believing us. We can't allow that to happen. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. So, we'll lose all our believers, and the Romans are going to hear about this guy raising the dead, and that doesn't fit quite within Rome's law and practice and they'll come and want to kill him and us too. So, what are we going to do? And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said to them, you know nothing at all. <laughs> you guys are dumb as posts. You just don't get it. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and the whole nation perish not. Now, he'd read some of the scriptures that he was thinking of here about how one would come and would save the nation. So he's going against all the other leaders of the Pharisees. And this spoke he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. So he's, he's talking about Isaiah 53 here and other places in the Scriptures. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. He'd read the same scriptures you and I are reading now about how God would raise up a remnant and he would come and save it. He knew that of the nation. The church hadn't existed, so he didn't know that of the church, but he knew it of the nation. He knew the prophecies. And he, at least, believed that Christ was the one to do that. Against the belief of the rest of the Pharisees that wanted to kill him. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. <laughs> yeah, maybe he did resurrect somebody. But we'll lose all our believers, and the Romans are going to come and kill us. And the chief priest tells us that this is the Christ that's going to come save the nation. So the obvious conclusion is we ought to kill him. Common sense, to me, is a oxymoron. Good sense is very uncommon. 
good logic is very uncommon. Emmanuel therefore walked no more openly among the Jews. From then on, they were dead set on killing him. But went thence into a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Passover was almost there. So uh, they were front and center going to kill him at any possible opportunity. So he just left and came back to let him do it. There's so many twists and turns in the story. So what do we get out of this? God is the God of the living, not of the dead. There is a resurrection. And Christ resurrected a man to physical life to instruct us that even though dead, we can live again. And this day, Feast of Trumpets, pictures the living again and how that will occur. It cannot be 216. I spent a long time there. Um, what do I have yet time for? Let's go to Luke 20, where I was headed when I decided to get detoured here. This is a holy day. We can take a little extra time. I usually, you know, normally in Worldwide Church of God, a sermon is about an hour and a half. Uh, in early history, it was three, four, five hours, but <laughs> then it got down to an hour and a half, and I... I usually give you about an hour, hour ten, so uh, there's a lot here that's important for us to focus on. Luke 20, verse 27. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny there's any res resurrection, and asked, no, wait a minute, I already... Fourteen? What do you mean, Fourteen. Oh, Luke 14. Yeah, I looked at the wrong place on that page. Thank you. I'm glad you know where I am. Luke 14, verse 7. Uh, and he put forth a parable to those which were bidden to this wedding, when he marked how they chose out the chief room, saying to them, When you are bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than you be bidden of him. Well, he's going to be talking about the kingdom of God and the resurrection here. So, isn't it all about attitude? Now, if you're in the first resurrection, you're going to face a conundrum of sorts. <coughs> here, I've just been resurrected. I'm part of the 144,000, and I see people coming out of the graves, and I see these that were standing there rising up with me. Um, I know we're going to the wedding supper. Where am I going to sit? Do, do they have the places marked? Where am I going? Now, human nature would say, I think I want to go to the upper room. I want to be important. I, I want to be recognized. We're going to face this soon, okay? This is just a story. You and I are going to be resurrected, I believe. If we remain faithful, that is a certainty. So, he that invited you, uh, and him come and say to you, give this man place, and you begin with shame to take the lowest room. 
That that would be kind of a put down, wouldn't it? You said, "Well, I'm in the 144,000. I must be the favorite wife. Uh, I'll go up here." And then somebody says, "No, wait a minute. Uh, I saw your name down there, and and you have to go back down there." I I hope we are all very very humble and humbled by coming up like Lazarus did. I don't know what we buried everybody in or what you might be buried in, but when you come out of that grave, probably be pretty pathetic. Clothes are old, dirty, somewhat rotten, and you're standing there in them. Maybe you'll shed them. Are we all going up naked? (laughs) I hadn't really thought about it that way. Those who are alive and remain probably will have clothes on. Those who come out will likely have clothes on like Lazarus did, but they they won't be in their best Sabbath attire at that point. Let's just leave it there. (laughs) Who knows exactly what will happen. We'll be given wedding garments uh, for the wedding. We're supposed to already have them on in terms of righteousness. Anyway... uh, Whoso exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. In all cases, humanly and then, it's better to humble yourself rather than trying to be recognized for what you think you are. Everybody may not have the same opinion, including the guy that's running the way, you know. Then he said to him that bade him, When you make a dinner or a supper, call not your friends, nor your brethren, nor your kinsmen, Know your rich neighbors, lest they also bid you again, and recompense be made you. Are you doing it? Are you doing favors? Are you doing nice things? Are you uh, buying gifts? Are you doing this so that you might get something in return? That's basically the way the world's attitude is toward it. There are always strings attached. Did you give me as good a Christmas gift as I gave you? Uh, I want one in return. If we give, we expect something in return. Even if it's nothing but a smile and a thank you or an acknowledgement, we have a string involved in most cases, regardless of whatever it might be. We want some kind of recognition. But when you make a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you shall be blessed, for they cannot recompense you For you shall be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. What did Christ say when somebody wanted something on this life? Just they have their reward. They want houses. They want land. They want this. Okay, that's a reward. Now, if you'll be humble and you will give without strings attached, and you don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, that's your own right hand and left hand, not anybody else's. What you do, you're not to even acknowledge yourself in looking for a nice reward and glow of how wonderful you are in that you did such. So not only are you not to spread it to others, You're not even supposed to pat yourself on the back about how sweet you are. You're just supposed to serve and give and help and do it to those who cannot return the favor. 
Now, that doesn't mean you can't invite your friends and your family. That's not what he's saying. He's talking here about attitude. It all comes back to that. Again. So, this is a piece of trumpets. Our reward is not now, is it? Our reward is in the resurrection. So don't be looking for the reward of men. Don't be looking to reward yourself. Keep your eyes focused on the reward that Christ has to give. Let me tie that with Revelation. We're going to reign on the earth, he says there in chapter 5 and verse 10. He's made us as gods and kings and priests, and we shall reign with him on the earth. But where I want to go to uh, with this other thought is chapter 11, verse 17, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty. This is uh, people who are going to be in the resurrection, the first fruits, which are and were and are to come because you have taken to you your great power and have reigned, and the nations were angry. And your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that they should give reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints and them that fear your name, small and great, <coughs> and destroy them which destroy the earth. So he's coming back not to reward the people of this earth, but to kill them and give them a reward later after they acknowledge him. But at the time he comes to start the seven last plagues to finish off most of mankind, less 100 million, is when he's going to reward the saints. So that's at the time of the resurrection, when he gives the reward to us. Same thing he said there. Well, we are, we are running short of time. Let me... I was going to go to 1 Corinthians 15 and, and spend some time there about how... It's only like kind. He will only marry someone who is alike like him. And Paul explains that there are different glories of birds and of the mammals and various things. But Christ will only marry that which is of like kind. So we have to become like he is. And it says there that we shall be like him as he is. So in the resurrection that is spoken of as the Feast of Trumpets, is a resurrection to like kind as Christ. We are to be imitating Him and becoming as much like Him as we can in our limited fashion now. But then we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye into the exact same thing He is. He produces Himself. Parents produce, reproduce themselves. Do any of you have cats, dogs, or cows for children? No, you, you reproduced yourselves. And when Christ produces, he's going to produce himself. We will be just like him. We will be on the same level as him. You do not marry a horse or a goat or a pig. Well, sometimes you might think so, but... Uh, we don't. We marry somebody very much like we are, human. And he is going to do the same thing. He won't have any 
being that he marries that are as lesser than he is will be equal, on par, exactly the same as he is. Now, he will be in charge. He's the head of the house. But doesn't the Scripture say that we are heirs together of the grace of God? Heirs together. So we are on the same level as our brother Christ. He's our brother. Now, siblings are on the same level, aren't they? The firstborn is given a double portion, just as Christ is given a greater portion of authority and so on. But brothers and sisters are all the same. And we are the same as Christ. I know it's hard for us to grasp. We don't fully understand the resurrection, but we're here today to try to understand it better and to focus on it and believe in it and know that it will happen because that gives us hope to move forward. Let's look at a couple very quickly, very short ones. First uh, Peter 1, and we'll wrap this up. First Peter 1. Well, I say we'll hurry, and then I can't find it. Um, let's begin in verse 2. Elect, those who are elected, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience, that means we keep the law, we're sanctified, we're set apart to be made as Christ is. And then if we obey in the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, why is it needed? Because sometimes we disobey and have disobeyed. Therefore, we need His blood, His death, to pay for our sins. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Emmanuel, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Emmanuel from the dead. We are to have a lively hope. We're not to be in the attitude of, well, I don't think I'm going to make it, or I'm, I'm so bad, I'm so sinful, I'm so this. No, we have to believe that the Father and the Son can raise us above what we have been and are, and He can work His salvation in us. When we are discouraged and frustrated, it's because we have our minds on ourselves, and we know we can't do it. Therefore, the frustration reigns. So we have to get our mind off ourselves, and He who died for us and can resurrect us, and have a lively hope to really believe that we will be resurrected and become God, as Christ is God. That's a positive approach. It's not a glass-half-empty approach. It's positive. That's the way He thinks. And He wants us to think the same way. Not hope against hope, not wish but doubt, but believe firmly that we are going to be there. That's what a lively hope is. 
Any old fish can swim downstream, as Herbert Armstrong used to often say. It's limp. It may be a salmon that is already spawned, may still be alive, but it has no energy. It has no zeal. It has no hope. It has no life remaining in it. It's swimming weakly, dying, and floating downstream. No. We're to have a lively hope. We are a strong, young fish, spiritually speaking, swimming upstream with the hope of spawning <laughs> a life forever in Emmanuel and the Father. A lively hope, a strength, a zeal for God. Now that salmon who just came out of the ocean in the salt water has a goal in mind, and that is focused absolutely. And whatever it encounters, whether it be a falls, it will work and work to climb that rushing water and get above it to the quiet spawning grounds. You've seen pictures of the bear snagging them out of the air. I mean, they go for it. And they, many of them, reach it. But they encounter all kinds of problems. I've taken them right out of the salt water before they ever got to the river with a net and pulled them out of the water and took them to my freezer. Didn't change their attitude, but something intervened. We fight principalities and powers and spirit beings that are against us that will take us away if possible. So they encounter all kinds of difficulties. People, bears, falls, whatever. But they have a lively hope of getting where they want to go. And it's all about attitude. We are not to be anemic about it. We're not to be half-hearted about it. We're to seek it with all our heart, with zeal and energy, focusing on what shall be. And really believing. Now, see, that was the thing that Christ was trying to get them to grasp when he raised Lazarus up. Now do you believe? You kind of did before. Now here's this apparition walking out of this cave. Now do you get it? Now if we get it, we'll be moving forward with zeal and energy, with our whole heart, knowing that it is going to happen. There is a resurrection, and we have been promised to be part of it. If we will just move forward in faith, we can absolutely, totally trust that it's going to happen. Let's close it then in Philippians 4. Because he tells us here our focus and what we need to do, what our attitude should be. Philippians 4, pick it up in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the eternal greatly. Now, here's a man who has rejoicing. That's a lively hope, loosely translated. Rejoicing and lively hope are kind of together. That now at the last your care of me has flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. 
Now he says, I'm rejoicing in that you wanted to receive me, you wanted to help, and you didn't have opportunity, but your attitude and your zeal was there. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. That's an attitude of mind, to be content however you find yourself. Now, where had he found himself? He had found himself laying on the ground with knots on his head, coming to consciousness, having been stoned to death and hurting all over, and been content. He had been shipwrecked and been content. He had been snake bit and been content. He had been in prison and been happy there. Rejoicing was his attitude. Where whatever privation, whatever trouble he found himself in, he was content there. Paul is someone we can follow. <laughs> you know? Whatever has happened to us, Whatever's occurred, death, dismemberment, sickness, whatever has occurred. We're not to be faunching at the bit and saying, why have you done this to me or why am I in this circumstance? We are to be content because God loves us and we are where he wants us to be regardless. And if he wants to wait two days, that's his business. Wait for him isn't there scripture that says, in patience, wait? Whatever the circumstance. Verse 12, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. I've learned to be content whether I'm in trouble or out of trouble. When everything looks great, I'm content. When everything looks bad, I'm content. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need. I know I'm going to go through all of these. I have and I will again. But I have a purpose. I have a zeal. I have a joy. I have a rejoicing. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. There's your answer. No matter what happens, I go to God in belief and ask for the strength to handle prosperity or lack thereof. You know, sometimes prosperity is harder to handle than not having anything. Because when everything's going good and we think everything's fine, is when we forget God. Who needs God? Everything's going great. Oh, now things are going bad. Oh, I better go find God. We keep losing Him and finding Him. I can do all things through he who strengthens me. Notwithstanding, you have well done that you did command, uh, communicate with my affliction. So, we are to have an attitude of seeking him regardless of what happens. Uh, I'm not seeing a verse here I wanted. Uh, where he says, oh, here it is. Chapter 3, this, this, this is it. Verse 13, here's our focus. Brethren, I count not myself to ap have apprehended. I don't know that I have it made yet. Uh, I'm working at it. I'm putting forth zeal, and I have a lively hope, as he said. 
But this one thing I do. Here's the one thing I do above everything else. Here's my focus. Here's my purpose. Here's my desire. Here's, here's what I'm all about, he says. Pay attention here. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, this is it for me. This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, haven't I told you to unhitch the trailer of your sins and other people's sins in the past? Forget about it. Isn't that what Paul's saying? I forget those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are ahead. My focus is not on the past. I don't worry about the past. I'm concerned about the future. And that's it. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Emmanuel. Let us, therefore, as many as be striving for perfection, be thus minded. And if anything uh, you be otherwise indeed, God shall reveal even this to you. So he says, you have this one focus. Forget the past, move forward. On what is ahead, the mark of the high calling of Christ. What is that high calling? To be there at the first resurrection. To be there to feast the trumpets. To rise to meet Christ in the air. To have all your hopes and dreams fulfilled. And to live together or forever in peace and security. No more death. No more pain. No more trouble like we've suffered here. But an eternity of peace and security. That's what the Feast of Trumpets all points to. Because that's where we're headed. So he says, don't worry about the past. Don't worry about the present. Press on toward the mark of the high calling. And whatever you go through, be content. Don't worry about it. Get through it. And how? Because you have a goal. You have a purpose. Like the salmon. You do anything to get there. That's all that matters. When you get there, you will never even think about what occurred in this life. He tells us that. He says, it'll be such a wonderful new world that you won't even think about what has gone on before. You believe that? Go for it.